Have you been searching for a community that gets it? Join me, your host, Monique, as we get real about the emotional, physical, mental, and spiritual effects infertility has on its victims. Let's connect and heal together. I am one in eight, too. Thank you so much, friends, for tuning in to Infertility and Me podcast. It's your host, Monique Farouk. Thank you so much for tuning in with me on this bonus episode. Today's episode is with Dr. Alicia Leggett, and she is from New York City. She is a clinical physician, and she is known as La Doctora. She is a board-certified family medicine doctor with a clinical practice based in New York City. She graduated with a bachelor's degree from Columbia University, and then she earned her MD degree from the University of Maryland, Baltimore. And through her work with urban care and working alongside women of all gender spectrums, to be a voice and to be an advocate for uh, their overall health and also being able to provide treatment for those that are in underdeserved communities such as urban communities and the most medically vulnerable disenfranchised people all over New York City. And she is a big advocate for reproductive health. And through her work with women from all gender spectrums, she has gained insight about the health conditions that most affect them during their reproductive prime, including the period of trying to conceive, pregnancy, and the postpartum period. She is also very passionate about using her voice and her expertise to bring awareness to reproductive justice for Black women. She is also bilingual in Spanish and is a mom to a bubbly toddler. And Dr. Alicia is going to speak to us today about being better advocates and also how to take care of our bodies during our reproductive prime. Also, I just want to give space for a moment to moms and dads of loss, since this is Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month here in October, and there will be another bonus episode coming out as well that features a young woman and her fiance and them having a stillbirth this year, just a few short months ago in May. And so that will also be coming out before the end of the month. So you guys be on the lookout for that. And that will be also a bonus episode and not a normal Friday episode. You know, there's a lot going on right now in the world, and I am just trying to bring you guys as much content, informational and inspirational stories and stories that can offer you healing along your own journey. And we're just going to go out with 2020 with a bang. And that is why I'm coming to you guys with the last few weeks of October with a couple of bonus episodes um, throughout the rest of the year as well to help support you along your journey and to provide you with information and resources that you can use along your journey as well. And we're just going to go out of 2020 with a bang because it's been one hell of a freaking ride this year. And I think we can all use a little inspiration um, more now than ever. So I thank you guys so much and appreciate you coming back week after week. Please let me know your feedback. Um, I'm going to be doing a survey very, very soon within the coming weeks just to get feedback on the podcast since we are coming up on the first year anniversary in November, right around the time of Thanksgiving. So that survey is going to be available soon. So I want to be able to get better at what I'm doing here and advocating on the Infertility in Me podcast for those suffering with fertility struggles, stillbirth, loss, miscarriage, and infertility. And I just want you guys' feedback. You know, the show is not just about me and me talking behind a microphone and 
you guys listening to all the stories, but it's also for you. This is your podcast. This is your space, your safe place, your healing place, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physically. And so I want you guys to give me some, your honest feedback about the podcast and what the work we're doing here. And so that I can become better. And so that I can bring you the kind of content that you most desire and that will help you along your journey. And so we'll be back in just a moment with Dr. Alicia. Thank you guys so much. Alrighty, so we're back with Dr. Alicia. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and making time for us today to talk about our health and our reproductive uh, health to be uh, specific. Awesome. Thank you for inviting me, Monique. So Dr. Alicia, I know from your website that you went to UMBC here in Baltimore, Maryland, and my husband went there too. So that's kind of, I thought that was kind of cool. And um, so what, what, was it during your studies found that reproductive justice was going to be like your thing, your niche, once you finish your degree in studies? Um, actually, it wasn't. Um, you know, when you're a med student, you kind of go into your studies kind of as a blank slate. And, okay. you know, depending on your experiences, that really informs kind of what direction in medicine that you want to go. Um, so for me, um, going into medical school, I knew that I loved working with women. I mean, I just feel like women are just so amazing, dynamic, fierce, strong, uh, mm-hmm. compelling. Um, yeah, so emotionally intelligent that, you know, I just find them as, you know, not that I'm not, not trying to knock my male counterparts right, 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 or right. anything like that, but I just find that, um, you know, just find a lot of passion uh, in working with, with women. Um and so I always knew that I kind of wanted to uh, do something related to women's health. And as a student, I was really interested in doing um, obstetrics and gynecology. But um, after my uh, rotation as a medical student, there were a lot of very troubling trends that I saw in the culture of OBGYN um, in terms of, you know, just the whole birthing process, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The medicalization of birth, and also particularly just how uh, detached and isolating it can be. Um, and also just because it's like purely focused on that moment, well, at least except obstetrics is. So I really wanted to kind of do something that um, was more, was more kind of holistically focused on the whole reproductive health experience, well as uh, be able to incorporate issues of justice, which I, which were always super important to me. So I chose family medicine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a way to really kind of incorporate the infants into the conversation, incorporate families, kind of look at um, dynamics of environment, as mm-hmm. well as talk about issues of justice, um, so that you can kind of really tackle health issues from a holistic point of view. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's, that's uh, incredible because that's a, that's a lot to take on with also being a physician. And you do you have your own practice? I thought I read on your website, you have your own um, practice? Yes, it's not a private practice. Okay. I work at a federally qualified health center. So gotcha. um, we care for, you know, some of the most uh, medically underserved individuals um, here in our great city of New York. And also, I just, you know, love kind of working with that population. That's kind of where I feel like I'm most needed. Okay. Um, so that's where I choose to work. So it's not a private practice, but you know, all comers are welcome. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So you, you guys really delve into like community and education yes. and making sure that I know on your website, it also says that working with the, um, I guess the forgotten ones, almost yes, urban community. Exactly it. Yes, mm-hmm. working with populations who are consider- considered traditionally vulnerable populations, or people who are more likely to um, suffer from health disparities, uh, health conditions, chronic diseases, primarily people of color. 
um, people who maybe have, um, if they're new to the country, new immigrants to the country, uh, oftentimes people whose second language is English, um, mm-hmm. people who've been formally incarcerated and who are, you know, just kind of reintegrating back into society. Um, all of these kind of the individuals who kind of are usually have these intersectional identity that might put them at risk for having poor health outcomes. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's so important. And I think that a lot of times people don't think that um, that individuals in, 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 in urban communities who are, um, who may be considered poor mm-hmm. or, or um, below the median average income in middle class. And, and I, I think that people don't believe that they are concerned about their health issues, especially women. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's this notion and this stereotype that they they are the first ones to run to like your Planned Parenthoods and getting abortions and mm-hmm. you know having the highest STD rates and mm-hmm. and um, so what what has been your experience in helping women with their reproductive care with um, the community? Yeah, I've, you know, I've had the privilege of really working in many different types of communities. Um, mm-hmm. I've, you know, landed in the FQHC world in the last couple okay. years where I feel most comfortable. But I can definitely say that, you know, all women are pretty much very similar in terms of what it is, the things that, that you know, really keep them up at night, um, mm-hmm. what are the things that they're most concerned about their health, um, you know, really kind of putting their families first and kind of really trying to ensure that both themselves and their families are healthy. I think one thing I've noticed in kind of working specifically with the population that I work in, um, in the Bronx, which kind of, you know, led me down this path towards, you know, being more vocal about justice is that there are a lot of women who have experienced um, really negative, uh, had negative experiences with healthcare, uh, particularly poor women, women of color, um, issues of not only physician bias, implicit bias, medical racism, uh, discrimination when they interact with the healthcare system, but also trauma, you know, people Mm -hmm. who sought out um, gynecological care, gynecological services, and felt as though their bodies were disrespected, were not valued, even in just the examinations or the care, Mm -hmm. lack of care that was taken with that. Um, As you know, many women who, um, many women, regardless of their socioeconomic status or their station in life, uh, may experience sexual trauma in their lives, sexual violence. It's not something that's uncommon. And with that, you know, going to the doctor and having, you know, to relive that or having some of those traumas, um, you know, is kind of like ripping off a Band-Aid, right? Like creating these fresh wounds can also be equally as traumatizing, if not re-traumatizing. So what I was finding is that, you know, one, my practice, which is, has traditionally been a family medicine practice with infants and children and old people and young people and men and women um, and also individuals across the gender spectrum was now kind of transforming into this practice of young reproductive age women mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of color. Mm-hmm. So I kind of started to ask this question, like, hmm, why is this happening? Mm-hmm. Um, and how did you find me? Because I'm in the most obscure part of the Bronx. <laughs> um, and, and as I started to kind of dig and uncover, I really started to, people started to tell me their stories. Like, mm-hmm. it's because I, you know, I want a Black doctor, something I would hear often, or um, I don't trust doctors. And my sister told me that you're, you know, somebody who actually listens and cares. Um, mm-hmm. So people, you know, unfortunately, 
going the extra mile was really kind of born out of people's negative experiences that they already had with healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, you know, in kind of starting to uncover some of these stories, which were actually quite, quite traumatic to hear and really, um, I think in some respects, um, opened up wounds for me because mm-hmm. I've also, as a woman of color, have experienced those types of treatments in dealing with healthcare um, myself, um, because I'm not somebody who typically likes to put out there like, hey, I'm a doctor. When I go into the doctor's office, I don't even really like going to the doctor. And I will be mm-hmm. the first to admit that I'm not super, you know, trustful either. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, hearing these stories from patients really kind of just uh, really, I feel like implored me to want to speak up and speak out on their behalf, especially mm-hmm. since there were also women just like me. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and and when you said earlier that your tribe kind of like found you, right? Mm-hmm. Once you got started in, people became, and the word the word got around that she was this compassionate, like you, you're uh, a compassionate doctor, a loving doctor, and a doctor who really is concerned about uh, not just what you're there to do, but also the mental and physical state of your patients mm-hmm. that you care for. So, and they started to share with you their reproductive issues. What were some of the patterns you started seeing, especially with black and brown women, you know, Hispanic women, Latino women and such. And I know you're bilingual in Spanish, right? Mm-hmm. So what, 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 what were some of the trends you started to see or patterns that you started to see as far as the issues they were having re- reproductive wise, um, things mm-hmm. like having former um, abortions and something happening to their, to their reproductive system or them not trusting their bodies or mm-hmm. having emotional suppressions. What kind of were the things you started to really um, see patterns in? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things, a couple of ways to think about this, because this issue, when it comes to uh, Black women's um, and women, uh, women of color in general, their experiences with healthcare is extremely complex, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, the way that we engage with healthcare is is multidimensional. So, in kind of thinking about physically, what are you know women kind of coming in for? Um, you know, women of color are suffering many in many cases from fibroids is a huge one. Yeah. Um, women of color who um, are suffering from irregular periods, things like that. Um, Also endometriosis is a huge Mm -hmm. one. And also many women who struggle with infertility as well, who are seeking pregnancy and haven't really been successful in doing so. Um, So with that, and then you have your kind of run of the mill primary care issues, like women just wanting their routine screenings for for breast cancer screenings, um, you know, wanting to understand what their risk of breast cancer is given, you know, black women are are at higher risk for mortality and usually later diagnosis from breast cancer. So people are very aware of that and and kind of want to know what it is that they can do to kind of lower their risk or to Mm -hmm. catch it early. Um, you know, those kinds of things. Um, so kind of re- really helping kind of women understand like why, why do all women in my family have fibroids, you know, mm-hmm. or um, why is it that I can't get pregnant and kind of helping them to uncover um, some of those issues. Um, and then there's how they engage kind of emotionally, uh, psychologically with healthcare that, um, that has, I think, been the most interesting to me um, in terms of, you know, this issue of, as I mentioned, medical bias that literally, I mean, you can talk to any woman of color and they have a story. I mean, mm-hmm. so widespread and it's almost like I call the not so silent epidemic uh, yeah. where women are... <laughs> 
interfacing with healthcare, not necessarily because they want to, because there is such a strong kind of deep-seated cultural mistrust mm -hmm. of doctors, rightfully so, right? There's a historical yeah. reason, historical context for that. Very dark past we have, yeah. Oh, yes, sure. very dark. Um, and, you know, with that, there's, you know, the way that we kind of approach it is, is kind of very mistrustful, but at the same time, in doing so, the treatment is, you know, often inequitable, and that's mm. kind of where we see these um, differences in outcomes, right? Uh, with uh, particularly the um, Black maternal maternal health crisis that we're seeing, where Black mm. women are dying at three to four times the rate that of their white counterparts. We see that with infant mortality, where Black infants die at twice the rate. Um, we see that with a whole host of health conditions like uh, preeclampsia during pregnancy, which I suffered from, gestational mm. um, diabetes, um, and other um, conditions that can cause um, higher rates of morbidity and death in pregnancy. Um, so with that, you know, uh, these trends were kind of emerging and really kind of understanding like, okay, where are the gaps here? Like, I understand where the story starts, right? Kind of. Mm -hmm. uh, me being a black woman myself and this also being a lived experience that I have and I know where this ends which is with these health disparities you know mm -hmm. and um, with these poor outcomes but then what happens in the middle to kind of get us from beginning to end so that's kind of really what I have focused my work um, in recent years on really trying to uncover like what are some of these trends like you're asking about so what are the trends in health what are the trends in mental health mm -hmm. uh, what are the trends in how women engage with healthcare? Um, and also just what are the trends in some of the other socio, um, what we call social determinants of health, those okay. socioeconomic political factors that gotcha. influence how, uh, how our health outcomes as well. Like what are the trends in um, where people live, um, what kind of educational access they have, right. um, if they live in a safe neighborhood, if they have access to housing or, um, you know, a safe place to lay their head, if they have access to clean water, if they live in a food desert or don't live in a food desert, right. um, you know, if they live near a highway or a sewage plant or some mm -hmm. sort of um, environmentally polluting um, <laughs> yeah, industry yeah, yeah. that can cause increased rates of illness and disease. So that all kind of contributes to that, as well as their family dynamics, right? And what mm -hmm. are some of the generational trends that we see? So kind of looking at all of that, um, as well as some uh, kind of trying to understand more some of the systemic issues that um, have been created historically in healthcare that also create these issues. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot. We could uh, we could be here for about probably three hours just on <laughs> the things that you just named and some because it just it, get, it goes so deep. It does. And, it um, and, 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 it, and I feel like I was born in 83. And I feel like when I was coming up as a as a first generation millennial, <laughs> that's what I like to call us as 80 babies. <laughs> you know, I feel like a lot of times we were pushed to one, stay away from SCDs, mm -hmm. like yourself, you know, that whole movement. And then also birth control was pushed a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel that there was a great lack um, in reproductive issues as far as endometriosis, PCOS. Mm -hmm. There was a time before I was diagnosed with infertility that I only saw Caucasian women mm -hmm. with those types of diseases. And when I became more of an advocate in the fertility space after starting the podcast, I realized, well, God darn, this is not, you know, because I always felt like, you know, fibroids 
was a black woman issue. When I went to the OBGYN, whether she was black or Caucasian or Asian, it was always, you know, do you have family history of fibroids and such like that? And so I even had some prejudices like, you know, coming into podcasting in the fertility space that there were certain issues that only certain races or cultural, you know, certain races dealt with. And when, when I found out that PCOS and endometriosis was just as prevalent, um, very close as Caucasian women, mm-hmm. faces I normally saw in those brochures and stuff, that was like really shocking to me. And do you find that a lot of your patients who have these conditions and diseases that they're like, well, I thought this was, wasn't our issue, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I definitely think in general, I think that having access to health information is like we in the medical community don't do a great job of ensuring that that information is kind of readily um, disseminated. Mm-hmm. Um, much of, you know, kind of cutting edge issues around health, around treatments, around, um, you know, education is often kind of hoarded in medical journals, which okay. Public doesn't have access to, right? I mean, there's Google and things like that, but in many cases, people don't know if what they're accessing is a reputable source, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so there's definitely that that issue uh, for sure. And I think, um, in terms of infertility, there's also this disparity in who can really access treatments for infertility, right? Like most women, I think, especially women of color, that when they come and they're, you know, it's almost like the first time they've ever spoken about it. It's something yeah. that they've suffered from with for years and have never really kind of even acknowledged in themselves that they've had an issue or with their partners. Um, And so I think it's almost like women feel like, oh, well, do I even, should I even tell you this? Is it even Mm -hmm. what kind of we're talking about? Because I know that I probably won't be able to get these treatments or be able to get, you know, the care in order to kind of look into my issue, which is just not true, right? Even for women who are on Medicaid, have Medicaid insurance or underinsured, there are always kind of ways to to, to um, initiate workups and to see doctors who will see patients who have this insurance, right? The wait times might be a little longer, but nevertheless, there's always a way. And also in primary care, I do a lot of these workups myself just because mm-hmm. I know simply that in many cases, women will be able to access um, some of these things that they see as specialists or Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, So, you know, I always, you know, at least try to arrive at some of these answers and answer some of these questions for individuals and at least give them the the validation that what they experience is real, um, that it's something we should look into, that there are options for them, um, that they should remain in a space of positivity and optimism um, while we try to move through this journey and figure out what these issues are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's often a surprise to people like, oh, there's there's something we can do now today in primary care. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, absolutely. There's lots of things we can do blood work and we can do imaging and we can you know kind of talk about what it is nutritionally that you could be doing, um, which is a huge part of it. Um, lifestyle wise, um, there's always kind of things that we can try first uh, before kind of initiating invasive testing and things like that with specialists. So, um, so yes, I think, you know, with some of these conditions, there definitely is an opportunity to teach around like healthy living as well, which, you know, for example, things just like having healthy weight and also having a a solid diet goes a long way in terms of improving fertility. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you as well, have you ever had any women come in who, um, who, 
come from a bloodline of heavier women and mm-hmm. maybe they were children and, and when they were children they were you know a little heavier than 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 their, than their peers and things um because i think i think that there's a there's a couple of advocates i know of who speak about being obese mm-hmm. and and some of the things that they talk about is having been obese as a child and now their obesity has caused them um or is part of their infertility and so I was going to ask you if you've ever encountered anyone like that in your clinic who kind of has a family history of obesity and maybe they are overweight a little bit and helping them navigate not I guess how would I say it helping them navigate eating well Mm-hmm. and not so much focusing on being skinny yeah if that makes sense you know what I mean because somebody who who was a child and was obese as a child I feel like their genes are a little bit different and it takes a little bit more work or it takes a little bit more tweaking than say someone who like me who grew up very thin and is mm-hmm. you know a, not um not obese mm-hmm. as an adult and I think that um a lot of times they feel shame that you know I'm this, I'm this larger person and this is causing my uh, infertility and they just go into this deeper despair of food and emotional eating. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. Um, I think to answer the first part of your question, um, yeah, so in terms of, you know, obesity, it's, you know, in kind of looking at this really deeply and kind mm-hmm. of looking at family structures and dynamics, um, oftentimes these things do run in families, right? Like, so whatever it is that I eat, my child eats, right? So mm-hmm. if I'm a parent who's not necessarily focusing on healthy living and nutrition, then my child is also going to, uh, you know, have that same kind of attitude towards food, whether it's junk food or if I buy the junk food, I'm, I'm shopping, that's what my child is going to eat. And unfortunately for children, there are, you know, biochemical changes that really, um, that are much more difficult to kind of reverse as an adult um, once your body has become adapted to um, having certain types of foods, right? Um, So it definitely does kind of make the battle that much harder to overcome when you want to kind of have healthy habits as an adult, which is why it's so important to teach children healthy habits, right? And it's not necessarily about weight. It's just about, you know, making sure that you get your fruits and vegetables, making sure that you're not drinking sugary drinks. I mean, it's really kind of these simple things for kids that will then carry them into adulthood. But yes, I have seen a lot of women who uh, who do suffer from obesity and also who are having issues of PCOS um, and also issues of infertility. And one of the things that I just like to impress upon them is, you know, why just kind of understand what their relationship is with food. I think because it really kind of starts from a psychological place in many cases um, where people have used food as a way to now for many reasons I mean eating makes us feel happy right that's just not for people who are overweight for everybody everybody loves to eat (laughs) absolutely I sure do for sure yes yes but sometimes people can develop unhealthy relationships with food too so that's kind of something that I like to explore with people is um, the only thing is it's kind of tough in, in, in the office because sometimes people are not completely aware of what, what it is they're eating. Sometimes people are eating unconsciously or mm-hmm. um, they're 
also because the the way that our food pr is produced in this country and kind of going back to these social determinants, right? Um, mm -hmm. The way that our food is produced in this country is it's really produced with a lot of a lot more fat, a lot more salt and sugar than what's really necessary yeah. to kind of manufacture that product. So people are inadvertently um, taking in excessive amounts of these things completely unknowingly. Right. So I think part of it also is about like educating people on how you read nutrition labels like sugar has like 20 different names on a label. But you wouldn't really know that if it doesn't if it says just sugar and you're like, oh, no, there's no sugar. Yeah. <laughs> but it's yeah. got like corn syrup and all these other things. Right. Uh, so just kind of understanding like how how it is that you read food labels and you know how it is that you can really structure your plate to be healthy. But also it's really interesting because our bodies will hold on to fat, even though people are trying to lose weight aggressively, our bodies will really hold on to fat if you're like holding on to drama or you're holding on to stress, mm -hmm. um, or even you're just holding on to toxins because a lot of toxins are stored in the fat cells. So there's a lot to kind of unpack there when you're trying to help someone with their, you know, getting healthy um, and kind of with weight loss and their journey towards improved fertility. Yeah, because that's one of the services I saw you offered on your website was just um focusing on the diet first mm -hmm. before anything else um comes about uh for reproductive care right mm -hmm. and um because i was i was recently talking to someone on instagram and she's having a really difficult time with improving her diet she has pcos just finding it really overwhelming and i'm pretty sure a lot of your patients find it really overwhelming to, to like where do i even start like and so what are some ways that they can I guess, understand food, like you were just saying, having an understanding for food, mm -hmm. what are some ways that they can do that at home when they're away from you or any other specialist that they may see concerning diet and trying to get their body um, to its fullest potential while they're going through reproductive um, assistance? Yeah, um, yeah, so definitely the reproductive um, specialists are going to recommend nutrition and lifestyle changes. That's usually kind of the first thing they recommend, even though they're you know going to start kind of with their workups and trying to figure out what the issue is. They also always recommend that, right? Like make sure you're healthy. First thing. Yeah, first thing. But for some people, they're like, what is that? I don't know what mm -hmm. that is. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it's like a million. It, it literally is a million things, right? Yeah. But I think um, a good place for people to start is just, um, you know, if you're trying to get healthy with your diet, it's just starting by cooking your own food. <laughs> it's just, you'd be surprised. I mean, you can cut the calories and the salt and the sugar by a third by just preparing that, that the food yourself. Um, so always starting there, trying to avoid eating out, um, avoiding foods that are like packaged. Um, so really kind of focusing on whole foods. So I like to tell people stay in the outer aisle of the grocery store. Do not mm -hmm. go in those inner aisles because there's nothing there for you except for the toilet paper aisle, which we right. all know there's a shortage. <laughs> right. Go there down the toilet paper in the cleaning aisle, but yeah. do not go down any of the other aisles because there's nothing there for you. That's good. So just really encouraging people to kind of stay in the fruits, the vegetable aisle, the dairy aisle, um, the meat. And also if you people do choose to, to eat meat, you know, really kind of making sure that they choose sources of meat that are organic if possible, hormone free, antibiotic free, because these things are all toxins that can um, lead to further waking. Mm. Um, yeah, so just kind of sticking to that and sticking to their food preparation um, mm -hmm. so that, you know, they are kind of avoiding any of the excess 
things that can cause us to hold on to weight, right? So just kind of starting there. Um, And then I think, um, you know, kind of helping people kind of rediscover their relationship with things that they love to eat that are healthy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we love, you know, greens. I love greens. And I feel like I just kind of rediscovered like, wow, greens are actually healthy. Like kale greens. You hear about kale, you think kale, you think about like some skinny vegan, but it's like, no, actually, like we've been eating kale for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mix our kale greens with our turnips and our collards. And these are all healthy things that, you know, Mm -hmm. when you compare them can be delicious. And I think, you know, to answer the second part of your question, you know, everybody kind of comes from a different cultural background. So it's also important to help them to um, kind of really um, evaluate like their cultural foods and how they can modify it, right? Yeah, you modify it and also um, what it is about your cultural foods that you love and how you can modify things to make them healthier, right? Like, so black eyed peas are very, very healthy, if, for example. I mean, there are things in the, I mean, I'm African-American, so that's the kind of the diet I have reference. Um, but there are a lot of healthy things in our diet that, you know, that we we often don't think of. We think of it as in a healthy diet, but there's lots of healthy things also mm-hmm. um, that you can kind of incorporate into your diet as well. So kind of thinking about what that is, and I, I have had a lot of fun with that, uh, with mm-hmm. patients kind of understanding like, oh, where are you from? Where's your family from? Right, okay, so right. let's talk about, mm-hmm. like if you're from the Caribbean, we can talk about Kalaloo, how, you know, right. the that they use in their diet um, and all of that, um, mm-hmm. that can be used to kind of inform how, what you, you plan to make or prepare. Like you don't have to veer far away from what you're already doing, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like, I feel like it's more of an incorporation, like, bringing more of the fruits, bringing more of the greens and the beans and whole grains, you know, like my husband is South Asian. So they like curries, uh-huh. you know, all those Mediterranean flavors and such. Yeah. And so he makes, he makes things with vegetables. Like for instance, he made salmon yeah. and he incorporated yeah. the kale greens with the salmon and put the curry seasoning on it. You know what I mean? He still ate his basmati rice, you know, because that's, yeah. that's what he loves, but you know, just doing small modifications like that. And yeah, exactly. Um, and I think it's really helpful. Or you know, a big, uh, big thing. And like, for example, West African diet, yeah. um, as well as in the Caribbean diet as well. Um, you see that a lot, a lot of fish um, in the Caribbean diet as well. Um, curries are really good. Um, in many cases can have anti-inflammatory properties. A lot of spices and seasonings that are used are really good for health, like turmeric um, as well. Um, ginger, obviously, onion. So, I mean, once you kind of also start to kind of learn about some of these things, you're like, oh, oh yeah, I'm going to add some more of that, you know, using fresh herbs as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think eating and nutrition can be fun. You just have to yeah. kind of have to. And I think sometimes when we go into infertility or having struggles with fertility, we already are so overwhelmed by our, our situation and, yeah. and what that's about and what, what, what our diagnosis is. And then, so that anything else that we, any information we, we are given about how we can modify and increase our chances of pregnancy and having full-term babies. I think a lot of times anything that comes at us is going to be overwhelming anyway yeah. as well. And so just having to, like you said, it's really not that difficult, but it is because yeah. it's a discipline. It's a, it's a, it's a discipline to, to modify your diet and incorporate more it fruits is. and vegetables, especially when we're like, we're working 12 hour days and don't really feel like cooking, cooking when we're coming home. But, you know, I feel like um, healthier foods don't take as much preparation either. It doesn't require hours and hours of cooking. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I know also that the infertility journey can be very difficult for women. So, yeah. um, 
you know, I just like to meet people where they are. If they're not quite ready for the information, that's okay. You know, whatever mm -hmm. it is that they're ready to receive, that's the information that I can give. Um, you know, there is a lot, I think, that is wrapped up into our reproductive abilities as women, like culturally, historically, um, even how we value ourselves, our self-worth, um, despite, you know, all of the many accomplishments we may have made in our lives, somehow this particular issue is like something that can completely make us feel like we're not, we're less than, or we're not, you know, worthy or anything like that. Um, so, I, al I also always recommend, you know, for people who are feeling in, in a space that's not optimistic or that's maybe not a space that's completely healthy to kind of go through this journey with um, someone who can support them, um, whether it be a therapist, which can really help them kind of process what it is that they're feeling, help them unpack where these emotions are coming from and also help them come to a place of acceptance um, mm -hmm. in the event that, you know, having a child naturally is not, you know, in the cards for them. I mean, there's always ways to do it, right? There's yeah. always ways to become a parent, but, you know, sometimes, especially for many of us, we've had this vision of how it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mm -hmm. quite happen that way. It can be very discouraging. So yeah, just making sure that you kind of make uh, space and time for self-care um, and if that includes you know having someone to support you that's a professional through this process to ensure that you get to the other side healthy and whole that's really the the goal right yeah yeah for sure and, and I also wanted to ask um I and I probably should have asked it earlier but it just came back to me as I was looking at my notes what is exactly reproductive justice Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think, I don't feel like uh, that word is used very often mm -hmm. and it may be some confusion about what it is and how it's different from self-advocacy or anything like that. Yeah. So reproductive justice is a, um, a term that's actually not quite that old, um, okay. coined in the nineties by black women okay. who, um, during that time really felt as if the mainstream feminist movements didn't really kind of incorporate experiences of black women into their agenda and really kind of wanted a word that would encapsulate that. The reproductive justice really encompasses, um, three main tenets. So one is reproductive health, which we were, we just talked extensively about, you know, making sure that women have access to uh, preventative health screenings like mammograms, pap smears, um, ensuring that they have access to um, a, a provider who can provide them with vaccines and things they need to stay healthy. Um, and also ensure that they um, have access to STD screenings to make sure that they have good reproductive health and, you know, access to some of the services that we talked about in terms of working up even infertility, right? Like mm -hmm. that's something that's super important. And just because you're someone who has Medicaid doesn't mean that you shouldn't have access to a reproductive endocrinologist, yeah. right? So that's hugely important. Um, and then the second thing is reproductive rights, right? So when we kind of tend to think about reproductive rights, we always kind of, our minds go straight to abortion, but this goes way beyond that or reproductive choice, right? Um, it definitely incorporates that and in the ability for um, an individual to make decisions about their own body. So bodily autonomy is a huge part of this. And it's not just as it relates to whether or not they want to be pregnant or not be pregnant, or if they want to prevent um, pregnancy with contraception, which is also part of that. But it's also part of when I, um, for example, if I'm a transgender woman and I want to receive gender affirming hormone care, or if I want to undergo uh, gender confirmation surgeries, that's something that I'm telling you I want to do for myself and I should be able to do that without mm -hmm. having to leap through hurdles, right? So bodily autonomy is super important. And having those rights 
um, respected and protected, right? Like, so everybody has a choice to kind of make decisions about themselves that they feel are best for themselves and their families, really without the meddling of anyone outside of themselves and their provider, (laughs) right? So it really incorporates that piece of it. And then the third piece, which is really kind of unique to women of color is ensuring that um, that we can access care equitably, Mm -hmm. uh, receive fair treatments, receive care free of racism and bias. And that includes um, systemic racism, which, you know, I kind of talked about a little bit and that goes very deep. But I mean, from, Mm -hmm. you know, issues of how even doctors are trained in medical school to um, issues of insurance um, access, um, issues of which hospitals will see you based on insurance. Um, That also includes like interpersonal racism bias or discrimination when you go into the doctor's office from people in the front desk or from the nurses or from even the doctor him or herself. And then also um, really being allowed a space to kind of feel, you know, to really have our feelings and and desires validated. Um, So that's kind of the internalized piece, I think, where we kind of internalize that, okay, well, this is the treatment I've always gotten. So this is the treatment that I I know I'm going to get. Right. And so I'm just not going to go to the doctor. Right. So we should really be trying to, in healthcare, encourage individuals who are at the highest risk for having uh, poor health outcomes to really to access care. We should make it easier for them. Um, so that's also kind of part of the bias. So really just, and the last, the very last piece, which incorporates the social determinants of health, which is, you know, I want to be able to, and every person should have the right to raise their child in a fruitful environment, mm-hmm. right? In an environment that's kind of free from police harassment mm-hmm. or free from uh, pollution, uh, free from crime, um, you know, a, an environment that has an, that has schools, good schools, uh, that has clean water, yeah. um, where they have access to heat, uh, just kind of these basic things, which, you know, really dramatically impact someone's fertility, right? And also healthy food, which we mm-hmm. about, right? Um, yeah. So all of those things are kind of justice issues, which is why, you know, now this time more so than ever is super critical that we kind of understand our reproductive journeys in terms of justice, right? Like, so we have an election coming up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of reproductive justice issues on the line here um, that, you know, mm-hmm. I some of the things I just named, right, mm-hmm. that are like on the line here. And so we all kind of need to rally around that and understand that our experiences as women of color, it is essentially a justice issue, especially as long as racism continues to permeate our systems as mm-hmm. deeply as it does, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. You're the you're the professional anyway. I'm just an advocate <laughs> given spotlight to. Yeah, absolutely. And um I'm finding myself becoming more, more interested in the advocacy side and the political side of healthcare, mm-hmm. uh, not just for black and, and brown women. Um, well, we're all brown, but not just for women of color, but for women in general, because I think that we forget sometimes that being a woman is a minority. Mm-hmm. And then when you are brown, it's a double you know, a double minority. And so it's important for all women to get out there and to use, um, use this time to 
make a decision about your health care and the health care of other people and the women in your life by voting mm-hmm. and, and really taking action um, with this particular election being really, really super duper important this mm-hmm. year. And um, knowing how your local state handles reproductive health too as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I agree. It's, it's, it's really imperative right now that we all get on the ball and, and, and do our part by voting. Mm -hmm. yeah for sure absolutely and I love that you mentioned local elections because you know we often tend to focus on the federal uh, federal elections which is also important Um, however it's really you know as you know right now we're kind of in this period where you know where there's a supreme court nominee confirmation Mm -hmm. going on and there's the threat that the uh, court is going to swing in a conservative uh, the pendulum is going to swing toward conservatism. And so there's some of these reproductive rights are really going to uh, start to be rolled back. But what's really going to provide that protection is where you live, right? Mm-hmm. Like what state you live in and if those those rights are protected locally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, local elections are critical um, to ensure that, you know, rights are protected despite what's happening at the federal level. Yeah, for sure. If there's any other words of encouragement, Dr. Alicia, that you'd like to give to listeners, um, it's specifically in going into the elections or going um, because it's the holiday time. And mm-hmm. I feel like uh, it's a really it's, it's a it's a really triggering time mm-hmm. for reproductive health. And another year goes by and I'm not pregnant, whether mm-hmm. you're single, lifelong partner or married. And I think that it's um, yeah, just any words of encouragement you can offer those. Um, being that it is a new year coming up and feeling like we're still stuck where we were last year, a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know that it's, you know, it is extremely, you know, can be a very difficult journey to kind of walk through. Um, and as I mentioned before, can really kind of bring up a lot of pain, um, particularly as it relates to um, your family and your relationship to them. Um, however, I just, you know, encourage um, all women to stay encouraged and to stay optimistic. Um, you know, I've heard stories of women who, after a decade, have been able to, uh, and several rounds of reproductive technology, have been able to get pregnant naturally, miraculously. Nobody yeah. knows how, but it happened. Yeah. Um, so just kind of not to give up that that hope, but also not letting it uh, kind of drag you to a place of desperation and despair, because your body, you know, those sentiments are not just sentiments, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're actually biochemical changes that happen in your body that make mm-hmm. it such that your body's like, oh, well, she's feeling this way. So this isn't something we should be doing right now anyway. Um, it's very interesting how that happens um, with, you know, hormonal changes and things that can change with our stress levels. So, you know, you're just encouraging a, a place, you know, some optimism and of course going through this journey with support if needed. Um, I think what you're doing is amazing and providing a voice to women who um, have issues of infertility and also from shedding a light on it that's, you know, kind of very positive, which I love um, about your, your Instagram page. Thank it's you. Funny. That <laughs> <laughs> um, it's also very encouraging and uplifting, which I think a lot of women need who are going through this journey at this time. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree. Dr. Alicia, can you give us your social media handle? Um, and then as, all, as well as your website, and I'll have it sh- linked in the show notes too, as well for others to connect with you, especially if they're local to you too. 
Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I'm at happy, healthy, Dr. Alicia um, on Instagram. I'm also a happy, healthy, Dr. Alicia on Facebook. Um, you can also find me on my website at uh, www.empowerhealthcoaching.net. I'm happy to, you know, provide consults or even just provide support. Sometimes people just reach out for support and I'm happy to provide that too. <laughs> awesome. And thank you so much, friends, for tuning into Infertility and Me. You heard it here first with Dr. Alicia and reproductive justice and care and also taking care of our bodies holistically. Thank you so much, friends, for tuning in to today's episode. Peace and blessings.